Welcome to the Speaking From Our Hearts podcast. In this edition, we'll be talking about many aspects of life, particularly health, relationships and wealth-related topics, all from a heart-centred approach. Your host, Paul Lowe, has a long and successful history of helping others through his coaching and mentoring, as well as his many charitable initiatives. He's been responsible for positively impacting thousands of people's lives, particularly young people from challenging backgrounds. Paul is the author of the books Mastering the Game of Life from Pain to Purpose and Speaking from Our Hearts. Welcome listeners to this Speaking from Our Hearts podcast episode where today I'm joined by a lady all the wealth, all the way even from Melbourne in Australia, a lady by the name of Georgia Foster. Georgia, a very, very warm welcome to you. Thank you for having me. I was just about to say a very good morning to you, but uh, because we're 10, 12 hours apart, uh, it's not morning in your part of the world, is it? No, it's the evening here, but I'm so used to it because I've lived in in the UK half my life, I'm kind of so on the UK time, even though um, we are ahead. But yeah, it's good. All good. Ready to go. Right. Okay. So your, um, your bio describes you as a clinical hypnotherapist specializing in behavioral drinking and the emotional issues that often accompany overindulgence. Hmm. Wow. And that brings us to, uh, I think you had a book, uh, you've produced a book as well, Georgia, called Seven Days to Drink Less. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's actually, it's it's a digital program um, that you can download from my website. Um, Seven Days, well, I mean, I believe you can, you know, you can train your mind to drink, you know, less in seven days or less, which is great. Mm. What... What inspired you to do this work, Georgia? Where did this all, how did this all begin? Where did it come from? Well, I, I mean, I'm a drinker, so it's not about not drinking. It just, when I was in my 20s, I had very low self-esteem. I'm 53 now. And I used alcohol as a way to feel more interesting, to feel more sociable. I had a lot of anxieties and I had very low self-esteem. So when I... I had the privilege of training in this amazing psychology in the States, which really, and it sounds cliche, but it really did change my life, which I'd love to share with you if we have time to talk about that. And then I went to London. I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I I felt I wanted to be somewhere that was helping other people, but I needed to help myself first. And with this psychology training, when I went to London, um, I met this friend a new friend and she said to me oh i'm doing this hypnotherapy course well that sounds interesting so i trained to be a clinical hypnotherapist and then the college invited me back to teach so i used to lecture for them for quite a few years and over those years i was working with myself um and i noticed by hypnotizing myself that i started to become more confident i didn't need to drink as much and i had a few corporate clients in the business district of London. And um, they were coming to see me about stress and insomnia. And they said to me, oh, Georgia, I'd really like to work on my drinking. Is it something you can do? And I was like, well, yeah, of course I can, no problems at all. So I kind of got a a, a reputation amongst a few of the the big banks in London that I was kind of the girl to go to, to get your drinking in a better shape. And it just kind of went from there. And I say to people, you know, I'm not saying 
there are certain people who do want to quit. And I understand that and I'm very respectful for that. But majority of people don't want to quit. So it's a really nice way to, because I myself know that, you know, we drink, nobody wants a hangover. Nobody wants to feel bad about themselves. Um, but really what, what it boils down to is drinking in a certain way becomes an emotional habit. And that's what the seven day program is about. Mm, interesting. Interesting. The, um, I just want to come in at this, um, um, this point, George, and give you a very, very quick whistle stop on um, my, my journey in, in particular uh, re- relationship to what you're talking about. So that, you know, the, the dance that then continues between us has got far more focus and far more meaning, you know, just for the sake of a couple of minutes. I mean, you know, listeners have heard this so many times before because it's part of my backstory, if you will. Um, but essentially, from the age of eight, when my mother remarried, uh, she married a, a guy that was, um, and I put this word out there, um, evil. And the effect that he had on my life and hers was catastrophic in the extreme. And to cut a long story short, um, through his, his, um, his violence, his abuse, his cruelty, his, and I'll even flirt with the word sadism, um, it obviously um, had, had a, a big profound effect on me as a child and also my mother. And the context of that, Georgia, was that um, the abuse and the violence and the cruelty that I endured, my mother would step in and try and protect me, for which she had the inverted commas privilege of regularly being beat up and me sort of quickly following. So this this was regular. I mean, this wasn't one off isolate. This was kind of daily stroke, weekly. Um, it was part of everyday life. The crutch that I learned at 10 years of age was one that I'd observed my mother use, alcohol. She was a secret drinker and I found out where her stashes were. I caught her one day, didn't say anything. I thought, mm, okay, I'll do that. And I very quickly, I think in a in a very crazy way, Georgia, understood why. Um, you know, we're talking about sherry, we're talking about whiskey. Um, for, for, you know, they're strong drinks, uh, particularly the latter, for most people, let alone a child. So that set me on the road to very, very, very early age of, as I say, my crutch. And um, what materialised for decades afterwards was this, what I call the black and white years, what I wrote about in my book, Emerging from the Forest, of this, uh, when when the world was black, was a metaphor for me being on the drink for six months, round the clock. If you drink two bottles, I'll drink three. If you drink three, I'll drink four. My cat's blacker than your cat mentality, all or nothing. And I've noticed that's terminology you use in your, um, you know, in some of your stuff, which I can relate to massively. And then I'd stop it dead. I could tell you when I was going to stop drinking. It was almost like a a machine, like a switch. And then I'd go into a white phase of life where I'd build myself right back up, train hard physically, get myself in a new relationship, work really hard at it, you know, good job, good money, to only then self-sabotage yet again because I'd got deep underlying um deservedness issues psychological issues from my childhood so i just share that with you georgia just to give some context to the ensuing conversation and some of the points that we're going to raise 
Mm. Well, I think this is the thing about it. You know, we, we, you know, as adults, we carry those, those anxieties and those insecurities. And I, I, I understand, I personally don't understand where you've, where you've been, but I definitely have, you know, the understanding as a practitioner um, and you've, you know, congratulate you for going, getting to where you are now and what you, on your journey. It's amazing. Thank you. So what's interesting, one, one of the uh, research uh, points I come across, Georgia, from yourself, or one of the statements, I believe it is the thinking before drinking that is the problem. What, what do we mean by that? Well, if people were drinkers, men or women were drinking from a, a space of calm and logic, they wouldn't be drinking so quickly. And I, I always say the first glass is emotionally medicinal. Um, and, you know, what, what a lot of people don't realize is that the psychology I'm training is that there's, a, there's one particular part that I call the inner critic part. And everybody has an inner critic, but that inner critic in somebody who is a drinker or has high anxiety or low self-esteem or in a compromised relationship or not feeling good about themselves. What a lot of people don't realize is the inner critic could be saying, you were terrible in that meeting today or your boyfriend thinks you're too fat or everybody thinks you're stupid or you better drink tonight because you won't be interesting enough or sexy enough or witty enough. And if you listen to that inner critic, you will drink because it triggers so much anxiety within the body as well, producing the stress chemicals, cortisol, adrenaline. But what a lot of people don't realize is that when they drink alcohol, the inner critic goes away. The inner critic goes away and that calm, relaxed, don't care about life personality comes out. Now, my goal with the program is that people can get that part to be before they drink, to be in that very important you know, space because we've got two parts of the brain. We've got, well, there are many parts of the brain, but for this particular example, we've got the fear-based part of the brain, which is the amygdala, which is the inner critic. And then you have the prefrontal cortex, which is actually in the middle of our forehead. And when we're in that space, we're calm, we're intuitive, we're wise, we make good decisions. But a lot of people don't realize that when they have strong negative thinking, then if they use alcohol as their way of escaping it for a period to give them some reprieve, the brain works on what's familiar and it will start to create the habit that this is where people go to have some space. So I'm saying you've got to train your brain to tune out of the inner critic before you drink. So you don't need to drink to get rid of that frenzied thinking, that anxious, you know, negative thinking because the problem is in the morning when you wake with a cracking hangover or feeling a bit under par that inner critic is so powerful in some drinkers and the irony is that the inner critic then says oh my god you know what did you do last night how much you drank last night and then the one thing you promise yourself you're not going to do is to drink that night but the anxiety in the inner critic is so strong that the cycle of drinking continues and that's why a lot of people can't seem to get out of it it's not because they don't want to it's because it's an emotional habit mm. is it locked into a more addictive mindset of uh, all or nothing i mean i you know i relate back to i'm a 10 years dry now but i, I look back uh, georgia on my own uh, journey which is to say started from the age of of 10 and lasted till the age of 50 so there was 40 years of 
really, really concentrated binge drinking. And I mean, you know, I'd end up on park benches, drinking anything I could get my hands on. I'd just basically get off the bus called, you know, society. I'd get off the bus and then... Uh, but that for me was, when I look at or reflect back on it, and certainly a lot of the research I've done around it was that sort of, that psychological addiction, that, uh, I mean, there's a whole host of things that fed into that, of course, not least the, uh, you know, the, the scenario that I've uh, I've shared with you. I think it, you know, there's a lot of other things as well. But it's that it wasn't the actual addiction to al- alcohol per se. It was that kind of brought in my six human needs, really, and particularly that need for significance to know I mattered. So like I said, Georgia, you know, if you drink two bottles, I'll drink three. If you drink three, I'll drink four. You know, that my cat is blacker than your cat syndrome. Mm. And I think that's very much the perfectionist personality trait, the all or nothing, because it's not just the inner critic. It's the perfectionist because the perfectionist is very good at having alcohol-free days. And they may not drink for, you know, all week, but then on the weekend just be a binge drink and that's their justification. But the problem is that, a perfectionist drinker you know, drinks quickly, the bell doesn't ring, they drink to oblivion, they don't remember, they have memory loss, um, they're in the doghouse with, with, with people around them because they can be abusive because they don't remember. And I think that's the, the issue. A lot of, you know, sometimes it's just easier to quit. And obviously you've had a big traumatic past and that makes a difference as well. And I think that a lot of people, you know, who not necessarily had traumatic pasts, but people who've had regular stress, um, we've all had trauma to a certain extent in our lives and, you know, grief and things like that. But if, if you, I mean, obviously you're exposed to alcohol at a very young age and they say that the brain, you know, for a man isn't fully developed until about the age of 18. So really not drinking before the age of 18 is a very smart move. But, you know, when you're in your 20s, it's socially acceptable to go and get drunk. And I think we're talking about a demographic here. My demographic is 45 plus who've gone through the heavy drinking days, maybe had their family, had a career or in a good career and realize that it's starting to affect them and they don't want to drink like this anymore. They do, but they still want to drink. Um, they're fully functioning people having, you know, have very busy lives and a lot of commitments, but, they just have, most of this I'm talking about is home drinking as well. So you know, what I'm saying is, you know, you, if you understand that your drinking is related to um, insomnia, which is a very strong and a critic, keeps you awake at night, um, anxiety. Um, it could be that your partner is a big drinker. Um, it could be that you've just, it's just what you've been doing for a long time. It doesn't mean you can't change but you've got to go to that clever part of the mind that needs to be re-educated to have other healthy, sober coping strategies. And, you know, we live in a society where we have, you know, alcohol everywhere. I mean, one of my um, American clients said to me, Georgia, she said, what I, when I was living in London, she came to see me and she said to me, you know, in, um, in Britain, there's a pub on every corner and in America, there's a pharmacy. I thought that was quite interesting. So, um, you know, we all have our vulnerabilities, but I think we don't talk about them enough. That's the problem. What you're saying is absolutely correct for many people is when you don't feel good enough, you, tr- you try and find ways to empower yourself. 
And the problem with alcohol, it can give you that feeling of being um, in a better space, but it's very temporary and it, and it, become, it can become a big issue. Yeah. Just um, what I love about the way you've prof- um, framed this perfectionist drinker, this all or nothing, it relates, uh, and what you've just said there, Georgia, I, I think it's sort of, it's worth context in, in, in uh, respect of the six human needs. Um, but this perfectionist drinker is around that, for me, it was the need for certainty, the need to control. You know, I've, I've heard the label um, <laughs> more than once over my, over my life, attribute, Paul, your OCD, you're way over the top. You need to control everything. Of course I did, because all that control had been taken away from me. All that certainty, that security that most kids grow up with, you know, of a, at least a moderately stable family life, if not idyllic, um, I didn't know any of that. In fact, it was just the opposite. So what I needed to do because of my vulnerability, my insecurity, my frailty, um, I needed to control. I needed to take that back. And that perfectionism in pursuit of perfectionism, which I now totally embrace as a, as a misnomer, because there's no, you know, friend of mine, well, one of my mentors wrote a book, uh, Rob Moore, start now, get perfect later. And it was a bestseller. And I actually said to Rob, do you know what, Rob? I don't agree with it. I believe in starting now, don't get perfect. Because if you chase that illusion of perfectionism, that's a big masquerade for your own vulnerability, your own insecurity. Because what is perfectionism? It's like, you know, the goalposts keep moving. It's so subjective. And then we can, you know, we're challenged by other people's perceptions of what perfectionism is. And it just becomes like a you know, being on the hamster's wheel or a dog chasing its tail. We go round and round and round. We get confused. We get overwhelmed and we get nowhere. So I I particularly like how you frame that, that all or nothing in terms of the perfectionist drinker there, Georgia. Absolutely. And I think the thing is perfectionists, I mean, they're great at setting goals, but they're lousy losers. They don't like being number two. And it's because for exactly the reason you're saying is because they're frightened that if they're not number one, that they'll get found out um, that there's something wrong with them. And so perfectionists can be highly critical of other people as well, because they don't like to be um, with people who expose vulnerabilities either, because it stirs too much within themselves. Although often a lot of people will drink to become more emotional, to be more empathetic, because in their sober life, is the guard down as like, whoa, you can't be anything but, you know, this amazing person with bravado and whatever. And, and it gets perfectionists into some, pretty, some very tricky situations because when you, when you want to be this perfect person um, and it doesn't come out that way or you get found out for not being perfect, it, has, it can have terrible ramifications. Yeah. And, you know, there's that whole thing about, how how secure are we naturally? And I think, you know, was it Bernie Brown when she said um, that, that actually our strength is our vulnerability? But it takes, I think it takes a certain strength to actually get to that stage or even wisdoms, maybe not too strong a word, Georgia, to say, do you know what? I am totally vulnerable as a human being, irrespective of whatever spiritual aspect or influence prevails throughout my life. Um 
But I and I accept that and I embrace that. And I think once you surrender to that, that reality for each and every one of us, and you've been very consistent from, you know, the uh, the start of this conversation around that sort of as human beings, we, we've got that because we all have, whether we recognize it or accept it. Well, that's that's a different matter. And I think that's where the certainly for me. Georgia, the masquerade, the, the veil of drinking hid over that because nobody's getting close to me. I mean, I created this old alter ego, this old different personality mm. of a hard drinking, hard fighting Irishman. I mean, yes, I've got Irish descent in my blood, but I'm an Englishman. But I created this whole, this whole lie, this whole facade, which was basically to say, please keep away from me. Don't come close to me because I know you're going to hurt me, because that's the story of my life. Mm. And I think, I think that's right. It, it's, you know, if, if you're using alcohol as that way to be somebody else, but actually ultimately, you know, what I love about the psychology that, that, um, that I work with in hypnosis is that I call it the disowned self. So if you are shy when you're sober, you become confident when you drink because the inner critic goes away. Or you become, you know, some people say, you know, Georgia, you know, the whole world thinks I've got this incredible life. But then after a couple of beers or wines or whatever, that person then says, you know what, I'm actually bankrupt, but I don't want anyone to know. You know what I mean? So, so what actually happens is that's why we become this supposing personalities. And what I'm saying is that being able to be these different personalities in your sober life means that you don't need to drink to become that person. And that's really, really important um, because then there's the other personality trait called the pleaser and the pleaser is the nurturer or, you know, doesn't really have alcohol free days. They, unlike the perfectionist, they have a problem saying the word no. And so they can get themselves into financial difficulty. They attract bullies um, because bullies love pleasers because pleasers always think what's wrong with me. And pleasers can get themselves into some very tricky situations um financially in relationships they tend to attract narcissistic personality disorder um and and i, I find that uh, i really mean, i genuinely mean this because i run i run um seminars in australia and in london on a regular basis and i always say to people if somebody is being mean to you it's never about you it's always about them yeah. and you know you've got to remember that there are a lot of cruel people out there and they choose to do that because they have low self-esteem, but they want to hang out with pleasers because pleasers never think it's, it's, they always think it's their fault. So I find with my program, a lot of people, as they gain sober social confidence, they just realize that dynamics of relationships have to change. And that's a really important part that sober communication is is really about improving your sense of self-worth. And, you know, you were talking before about not being perfect. Really the goal is that we're intuitive, where, you know, when you're intuitive in your sober life is you just give yourself so much more freedom to think good thoughts. And, you know, I think a lot of people choose alcohol to bring those thoughts in. And I'm saying, but when you do it in your sober life, you realize you just don't need to drink like that. And that's such a great gift. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. I, and I can relate to it so strongly. I really can, you know, because of obviously the inner work I've done and 
um, the whole experience and then talking to, you know, experienced practitioners, professionals such as yourself, George, you kind of just, you know, there's always that sort of extra nugget, that extra insight to, to, to glean, isn't there? And it just, just enhances the whole learning experience, which, you know, I think one of the things I've learned from a, a more holistic perspective is, um, and this is just my one of my beliefs, that uh, the reason we're on this earth is to learn and to actually leave it a better place as a result of that learning. Mm. Oh, um, absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think we need to be honourable that, that, you know, if we want to have a better quality of life, we have to, you know, have a sense of self-worth that we deserve to be around people who are good for us as well, you know, um, because I think there are just too many people out there, you know, creating all of this. I mean, obviously you, your family history is, you know, on the spectrum is at the very, very bad side of it. But mm. a lot of people, you know, I'm talking about just judgmental parents, um, expectations on their children, making them feel like there's something wrong with them unless they don't get a, an A here or become a, a lawyer or a doctor. Because I think a lot of a lot of parenting is about, sadly and frustratingly, is about their children being their own, like the, the criticising children and trying to make them be the best so that to the outside world they look like they're a perfect family. So it starts so early. Um, and then the child thinks, what's wrong with me? Because who I really am is I actually really want to be artistic rather than be a lawyer. And then they become a lawyer. And that's when the lawyer comes to see me in my London clinic and says, I hate being a lawyer. <laughs> but I'm trapped in this and I just drink two bottles of wine a night because I'm so unhappy, you know. Um, and that's, it's really sad that adults have feel trapped, even with the wisdom of years on this planet, that psychologically they feel that they're going to let people down if they become who they really are authentically. Absolutely. Love that as well, because that very, very nicely dovetails in, into the work that I do. I think the two th the two key questions that uh, we ask stroke need to ask ourselves, Georgia, on a conscious level is who am I and what's my purpose? And the latter is really around where I do my professional work, helping people to find their true life's purposes, you know, and strip back that um, that mask of who you think you are to reveal who you truly are. And, you know, usually they're very, very polarised. And you've given a fantastic example there of, you know, I didn't really want to become a lawyer, you know, family pressure, what have you, um, you know, led, led me down that road. But I'm very unhappy. Um, almost leads people to drink, doesn't it? Yeah, because... If you feel who you are is not, you know, on, a, on an unconscious level, on a deep emotional level, isn't good enough, then that means you've got a strong inner critic that keeps saying, you know, you, you are, well, they call it the imposter syndrome. You're a lawyer, but you're not really good at it. And that's a big anxiety in itself. Um, and I think that a lot of people, my, my client base in the UK was a very big cross-section of mums at home, um, people in the media, uh, a lot of very successful people. And I always say to people, if you could just be a fly on the wall in my clinic for a day, you'd think, oh, my God, I'm really quite normal <laughs> because we all are normal. We've just got little quirky behaviours. And one of them is that, you know, get yourself into a bit of a drinking state that isn't good for you. But the problem is that unless you deal with the thinking before the drinking, the drinking, I mean, the drinking is 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 the symptom not the cause and i'm saying 
you know, when you go to your doctor and the doctor says, just drink less, if it was that easy, we all would have done it by now. And the reason why it's been difficult is because there's, there are habits in place that need to be worked on. And just picking up on that thinking word there, Georgia, there's the step. I mean, certainly if we follow uh, Gandhi's model of um, beliefs create thoughts, there is that step before the thinking, isn't there, around what deep-rooted beliefs have we got? Um, I mean, that, that's a whole kind of, I think, a podcast discussion in its own right. Um Okay, so in terms of a how-to, Georgia, um, you know, I always say to to guess at this stage as we start to to work towards a a close, um, leave us with something really powerful, something to think about. You know, for for those of us that may have these challenges with with drink, what you know, whatever that dynamic is. Um, you know, the old elevator pitch, really, and, you know, in sort of 30 <laughs> seconds, 60 seconds, whatever. Might might be a big building. It might take two minutes uh, for the lift to go to the top. But leave us with something, an insight, a tip, something to, to cling to, Georgia, if you will, please, in terms of, uh, well, aligned with your seven days to drink less. Yeah, sure. Well, I think what's important is your history is not who you are. It's what has, ha- has happened. And I'm very firm believer in the the neuroscience, the neuroplasticity theory that we can change our brain and everybody has the resources to create a different future. And when you tune out of the inner critic, so many things are possible. So I say to people, if you really want to make a change, start to diarize with your inner critic. What is it saying to you? And you know what, when I see what clients write down or people who send their their, um, emails after doing the seven day program and say, I had no idea how cruel I was to myself is starting to be kinder to yourself makes such a massive difference. And it could be just little strong things. Like you set your alarm every hour with a statement, it's safe to drink less or it's safe to like myself or to, you know, I would say set the brain in a different space. So keep, you know, positive memories or like a song that motivates you. The more we're in a positive space on a regular basis, the more the mind knows it's safe to be in that place. So who your mind thinks you are is not the truth. It's just a habit and you can change that. Love it. Absolutely love it. Resonate and totally agree with that 100%. Love the bit about the music as well. One of my uh, favourites that I've played over the years, Shirley Bass's This Is My Life, when she stands up and just says, you know what, stuff you will, the way you've hurt me, I don't care because I've got such a lot of love to give and I'm going to give it, so try stopping me. Um, mm. Yeah, but you know that that Absolutely. you know that's one that works for me. Okay, so um, Georgia, it's been absolutely well. It's certainly been very insightful, but it's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom, your expertise, your experience. I, I'm sure it will be invaluable um, to to people that are listening. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. If anybody wants to contact me, my website's georgiafoster.com. And that's your your primary contact, is it? Georgia, any other means or or through that, that, just through the website? Yeah, that'd be great. Okay, great stuff. So there we have it, listeners, Uh, all the way from Melbourne, Georgia Foster. And all that remains now is for me to say, remember, no matter what you do in life, always walk your path with heart. Hearts, helping everyone achieve results towards success.